in the book of Amos, chapter number 2. Tonight, for the past uh, few Sunday nights, we have been just sort of walking through the book of Amos, and we have been uh, just preaching as the Lord lays things upon our heart, and uh, we have made our way now to uh, this second chapter. We've been preaching on this phrase that is used repeatedly throughout the uh, first and second chapter of the book of Amos, where Amos says, "...for three transgressions and for four, and he catalogs for us eight different peoples upon which God is pouring out his judgment during those days. And uh, he catalogs their sins, what they had done, uh, wh- how they had transgressed the law of God. And uh, it's interesting, we've made the statement that if you were to look on a map and, and follow where these nations are, they, they sweep across the uh, western border from, uh, you know, south to to north of, of Israel. And then they, then he starts talking about other kingdoms that are kin to the nation of Israel. And then he works his way down to even the southern kingdom of Judah. And they too are included in this denouncement, uh, concerning the punishment, wrath, and judgment of God. And he is closing in upon what is his target audience in the book of Amos. The book of Amos is written primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Amos is going to spend the rest of this prophecy dealing with that northern kingdom of Israel. But first, he just sort of sweeps the perimeter, Brother Ken, uh, taking in all of these nations and working his way closer uh, to the kingdom of Israel. You might say, well, preacher, what does that mean to you? Well, it reminds me uh, that nobody escapes the judgment of God. Reminds me that God deals with His own children. And uh, I would say this, that you and I might be even in a more narrow position because the New Testament principle is judgment begins at the house of God. Amen? Uh, He ain't just beginning close and working closer. It begins at the house of God. And of course, no one escapes the eye of God. No one escapes the righteousness of God. Now, I'm thankful that as relates to my sin and my past self, that that's under the blood. But you better mark her down that as a son of God or a daughter of God, as a child of God, God will deal with us in our disobedience unto Him. Uh, God judges His people. Amen. And I'm thankful that He does. Uh, A parent that will not discipline their child and will not correct their child is a parent that doesn't love their child. Amen. And every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Amen. And uh, that's what we find to be a, a common drumbeat throughout the book of Amos. Well, let's begin reading in verse number 6 of Amos chapter number 2. Verse number 6 of Amos chapter number 2. The Word of God says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes to pledge by every altar and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites, 
Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart that is full of sheaves. Therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself, neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be back in your house. I pray, Lord, that you would wield this word as it is the sword of your spirit. And, Father, that you would work in the heart of each and every person that is here. There's folks out in the parking lot. There's folks inside the building here. But there's not a one of us that escapes your eye, Lord. Every single one of us you see, you love, you care for. You are perceptive to the issues of our life. Lord, if we've got sin, you know about it. If we have fears and anxieties, you know about them. If we have pride and haughtiness, Lord, you know about it. Everything in our life is is naked and plain and bare before your eyes. We pray, Father, that you would deal with us according to those things, for we need it, Lord. Uh, Left up to our flesh, it would cover up our sin. Left up to our heart and to our mind, it would make excuses for that pride and that haughtiness. But Lord, we know that you'll give no quarter uh, to our sinfulness. You'll give no quarter to our carnality. So we pray that you'd help us tonight uh, as you seek to work in our lives. May we be humble enough to hear your word and to hear your truth and to heed your commands. We'll be sure to thank you and praise you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the first week, we preached a little bit of an introduction uh, message on Amos himself, who he was and who he was prophesying to. You've heard me say this. I sound like a broken record, but I'm going to just keep on sounding like one because this is a vital principle of studying your Bible, that when you read the Word of God, there's a few things you ought to always set out to know about what you're reading. You always ought to set out to know who pinned it down. Now, we all know the Holy Ghost wrote every word of it, but we ought to strive to understand who pinned it down. We ought to strive to understand who they were writing to. We ought to strive to understand when it was written and what was going on uh, in the kingdom of Israel and in the nation of Israel at that time, particularly in the Old Testament. We ought to always try to understand what was God trying to say to those people. Listen carefully. If you want a good guardrail against false doctrine, always let your application of Scripture grow out of the application of Scripture. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Let your application grow out of the context. In other words, don't just read it and say, well, I can make that mean this in my life. No, no, no. Read it and say, what did it mean to the people it was written to? And then can that meaning apply to my life? We did a little bit of that this morning. We found out what Micah was saying to the nation of Israel. Then we said, hey, what does that mean to you and what does that mean to me? That application should always grow out of the context of the Word of God. What was God saying to them and then what can we derive and understand that God wants to say to us from that? Well, following those rules, we find that Amos, uh, who was a herdman of the wilderness region of Judah, known as Tekoa, he's described as being a, a bruiser of figs, a bruiser of sycamore fruit. Uh, that was about as poor a job as you could get, amen? Uh, that was about as lowly of a vocation as a man uh, could work. And God called 
called him from those fields, from following the sheep and gathering sycamore fruit, and called him to journey north out of his land, out of his comfort zone, out of the place he was familiar with, called him to journey north to the big metropolitan areas of Dan and Bethel and Samaria and Gilgal, those places in the northern kingdom of Israel where the idolatrous calf worship was taking place uh, that God chose and sought and desired to denounce. And so Amos uh, travels to these northern cities and he begins to upbraid these surrounding areas. And we've spent a couple weeks preaching on how he uh, denounced. We talked about judgment on the Gentile Joneses a couple weeks ago. How many of you have heard the phrase keeping up with the Joneses? Well, there were some nations around Israel that they seemed to always be following, that they seemed to always be looking up to, and uh, he denounces them. He talks about the Philistines there in Gaza. Uh, he talks about the uh, the uh, Phoenicians there in uh, Tyre, uh, the uh, great city of Tyre. He talks about the Syrians there uh, when he talks about Hazael and the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And so he condemns these kingdoms. And then uh, we preached a little last week on the condemnation of the kin kingdoms. We talked about the land of Edom, who are the descendants of Esau. We talked about the uh, Amorites and the uh, or the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were the descendants of Lot by his own daughters, that incestuous relationship. And then uh, he condemns the people even of Judah. He condemns Jerusalem. He condemns the place where the temple sits. Hey, listen, if he would condemn his own house, what makes us think he wouldn't deal with us? And you can imagine, if you would, one commentator described it, you can imagine as, as Amos is denouncing all these places, the elation and joy and, and smiles and appreciation on the face of the people of Israel. You can imagine as he's, uh, you know, they're sitting there going, yeah, that's it, Amos, give them what for, amen? And then pretty soon Amos turns and looks at Israel. And the greater bulk of this prophecy is not directed towards those other places. It's directed toward Israel. Now, you might say, well, preacher, what does that mean to you and what does that mean to me? It means this, that as we hear and heed the preaching of the Word of God, it ought to always be first, Brother Fred, with an eye to us. Uh, how often do we get that, that we talked about it this morning, that somebody else syndrome. That was for somebody else. That'll happen to somebody else. That'll never happen to me. Or this, that the Word of God is saying is not talking about me. It's not dealing with me. And I, I'm fairly sure there was a, a fair bit amount of that going on in Israel whenever Amos was denouncing all these kings. They probably saying, oh, look at all those wicked people out there. And then God trains His side upon them. Uh, as we listen to the preaching of the Word of God, as we study the Word of God, as we read the Word of God, it ought always first be, God, what are you saying to me? Now, is God saying something to some other folks? Well, I, I, I hope He is. I'm banking on it. Amen? It's the only way it's going to straighten some of you all out. But it ought always be when we read it that, that He's dealing with us, that we're seeking to understand what's He saying to us. And so God trains His sights upon the nation of Israel. And we find that in these verses that we've read, I've got about five things that I want us to notice in this particular chapter. And we'll just sort of walk through it. And I want you to think about what it means in your life and mine. This passage that we have read, it begins sounding out like the relentless pealing of a bell, that first, uh, that common phrase in verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel 
and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because. Let me stop there and say a word about that. I've already preached on it. I ain't going to go through and, and preach and preach and preach. But uh, let me say that that reminds us of a few things. One, it reminds us that there is a record of our sins. He says for three transgressions and for four, it almost sounds like God's keeping count. Can I tell you why? Because God's keeping count. <laughs> And it's not because God seeks to sit up there like a, like a petty tyrant and drop a brick on you every time you do something wrong. It's because God is an omniscient God. He's aware of everything. I, listen, those of us that take comfort in the fact that He takes note of every righteous thing that we do, and I believe He does that, don't you? I believe if nobody sees, if we're serving the Lord and nobody sees it, God still sees it. But there's a flip side of that coin, friend, and that means if we sin, if we do wrong, hey, it might be nobody sees it, but God sees it. He's aware there is a record that is taken place and then there is a reckoning coming. He says, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. In other words, there's going to have to be an account. We're going to have to answer for it. And so this same model is set forth with the nation of Israel. But let's consider what it says after this because. In all of these instances, what God has done is He has said there is a reason that I'm going to judge you. There is a record of what you've done and I'm going to recount to you what you have done wrong. Uh, For all the various ones, it has been different. There have been some similarities. What does He say was Israel's sin? Or sin, excuse me. Well, it's interesting because there is in these verses a scene that is related to us. Not a sin, but a scene that is related to us. Listen to how it's described. He says in uh, verse number 6, "...because, number one, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes." We find that this scene begins, first off, with a scene of injustice. The idea is that those that were so indebted that they had their own lives had become soluble. Those that had so indebted themselves, uh, this was a common thing at one time in this country and others where people would be thrown into a debtor's prison if they could not pay their bills, if they could not pay their debt. Now we just throw our great, 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 great grandchildren in debtor's prison, amen, and print more tax money. But there was a time when they would throw a man in debtor's prison if he could not pay. We have accounts in the Old Testament. God had a structure set up for how men were to settle those disputes one with another if one had debts that they could not pay. But when God looked down on the apple of His eye on the holy land of Israel, He found that they were willing uh, to throw a man in prison. They were willing uh, to destroy a man's life, to wreck everything that he had. All for, what does He say there? A pair of shoes. The idea being that they didn't value a man's life any more than you would, Brother Tim, a pair of shoes. They sold them for silver and for a pair of shoes. You know, it sounds to me like what they did was they devalued life itself. I don't want to swim into political waters here. Actually, I do want to swim in political waters here. But I'm going to, be try, I'm going to try to be careful and preach the Word of God. But let me just say that we live in a society today that has devalued human life. Devalued human life. We live in a society today, and and it's interesting, it's been fascinating to watch people clamor over one life being saved when those very same, very often, those very same people have no interest in the thousands that are murdered every day. Every day. Uh, It was said before that if this whole pandemic shut down abortion clinics for two weeks, it would save many more lives than it could possibly take. And let me just say, and I don't mean this in an ugly way, but it is my heart, it is my opinion, that I have a hard time listening to people talking about cherishing life and saving life and guarding life, that wholesale murder unborn children. 
I just have trouble with that. You might be okay with it, and that's fine. I have trouble with that, hearing that and listening to that, because we live in a day today uh, where uh, the lives of unborn children are sold for mere convenience and career and comfort. I'm saying we live in a scene, a day today of injustice as they did a day. And by the way, this isn't just true in the matter of abortion and the wholesale slaughter of the unborn, but it's true across the board where men are made merchandise of and all we are, uh, we live in a society today where all we are are ad revenue and nothing more. We're being conditioned to be on a, a uh, farm, a revenue farm of nothing but eyeballs and, and a revenue farm of nothing but what people can derive and, and draw out of our life. Uh, we're living in a day of deep injustice. So I see a scene of injustice here. Look at verse number 7. Here's what else they did. It says that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. Now, commentators do a little bit of arguing about what that phrase might mean, but I'll tell you what my opinion is, and you can take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, it was often the case in uh, ancient uh, East, in the ancient East, that when a man was uh, was uh, despairing, when a man was uh, going through trials and turmoil, when a man's life had upended on him, uh, that one of the things that he would do to show his sorrow and to show his angst is he would cast dust up in the air and let it fall upon his head. We find Job doing this, uh, covering himself in ashes and in dust uh, because he had lost his family. It's a sign, if I read my Bible right, it's a sign of great sorrow and great angst and great heartbreak. And the Bible says the people of Israel that they panted after that dust. What does that mean they panted after it? Well, the psalmist talks about us uh, uh, panting after the Lord as a heart pants after the water brook. In other words, like a deer that's been running heavily, that's been uh, running fastly and has exerted itself will, will pant until it gets a drink of water and will long for that drink of water. That's how the Christian ought to desire after God, but here we find that same language used to describe ungodly people that desire, that pant after the heartbreak and turmoil and tragedy of other people's lives. And here's here's how we know that's true, because the next phrase, he says, they turn aside the way of the meek. Now, what are the meek seeking to do? The meek are seeking to survive and advance uh, through godliness and through trusting the Lord. That's what meekness is. Meekness, listen carefully, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under spiritual control. Uh, the Bible tells us that Moses was the most meek man that ever lived. Now, was Moses a weak man? I think he was not. I think he was a man that could command the very authority of God. I think he was a man uh, that could uh, call for the earth to be opened up and swallow up whole groups of people. But he was also a man that made himself a servant of all man men. He was a man that spent his days performing funerals uh, for people that lived in unbelief and listening to the griping and complaining of people that were bickering and griping about what God had done and where God had led. He could have he could have smote every one of them. He could have asked God to just finish every one of them, but instead he made himself a servant of all. He took that strength and put it under spiritual control and spiritual servitude. Now, it says that they turn aside the way of the meek. What is the meek trying to do? The meek is trying through godliness, through God-likeness, through Christ-likeness to advance in life. And these men, what were they doing? They were taking that pursuit, that course, that desire, and turning it aside. In other words, we might say this, that here's a meek man coming down the road just trying to get along and trying to get by uh, by being like Christ, and they push him over in the ditch as a result of it. Can I say this, uh, that it is a truism of life that we live in a world where the meek are consistently taken advantage of. 
Now let me, let me stop and back up and punk. Can I do that? And let me say this. In a sense, the meek are never taken advantage of. You know why? Because the God of glory takes note of what they do. But it does not change the fact that we live in a society and in a world that believes that might is right. And so often, even God's people yield to this indifference. And that's the word I'm going to use there. It was not just a scene of injustice. It was a scene of indifference. They didn't care who they were hurting. They didn't care who they were damaging. Not only that, look at the end of verse 7. It says, And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. It was a scene of immorality. Now, it's very likely that the maid that's being spoken of here would have been one of the temple prostitutes in these Canaanite pagan religions that were so pervasive in the land of Israel. Also in Baal worship and Ashtoreth, pretty much all those ancient pagan religions, uh, sexual immorality was ingrained in and built in as a part of their religious worship. This is still pervasive today. You go to the land of India and uh, Amy Carmichael, the great missionary of the Lord, spent her whole life trying to rescue young women that had been enslaved in these temple prostitution rings and systems, trying to rescue them from that life and show them light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even today, if you went to places like India, you would find that this is still taking place today. And God says it's not just that you're participating in this, but you have so seared your conscience that you don't see anything wrong with the incestuous nature of a man and his father going in under the same mate. It was a gross immorality. It was a scene of immorality. Not only that, look at the next phrase. It says that they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. This was a scene of idolatry. The idea being that people had brought their clothing, brought their token, brought their oath. We talked a little bit about that this morning, about the difference between the robe and the outer garment and how, Brother Charlie, that outer garment would be used as a pledge to someone, as collateral against some decision or commitment or promise that they had made. Well, in this Old Testament, or excuse me, in this pagan worship that was taking place in the Old Testament, uh, in the land of Israel, they'd take that cloak and lay it as an oath to these gods, to these idols that they were going to perform some task. The scene is that uh, this man goes and lays himself down in worship upon these clothing and prays to these pagan gods. And then notice the last phrase in verse 8. It says, they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. The idea being that the uh, wine that had been uh, taken uh, from those that had been uh, considered criminals or those that had been considered in debt and insoluble, they would take and toast that wine in these pagan idolatrous temples. Now listen carefully, and this is where I think you'll get the force of it. In combination, this is what one commentator said, in combination, the whole picture is almost overwhelming. Amos pictures a man committing sexual immorality with a temple prostitute. The same girl his son visited the day before, keeping warm with a garment extorted from the poor, toasting his success with wine bought with money dishonestly gained. You say, well, preacher, that's, that's fine that all that happened. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it ought to mean to me and you. It ought to remind, these are God's people that's being talked about here. You remember in the New Testament, in the book of First Corinthians, when Christ or when uh, Paul rebuked the church at Corinth, he said that there's there's iniquity, there's ungodly, there's wickedness going on at the church at Corinth, so uh, that that's not even named amongst the Gentiles. 
Can I tell you this, that it's possible, and I would say it's not just possible, it's probable that God's people, when they get out of the will of God and when they get sin in their life, they are prone to sometimes do worse things than even rank idolaters and reprobates would do. That's the scene that Amos sees before him. That's what God exposes to him. This was the holy, precious land of Israel, the apple of God's eye. And he looks and he sees people that are corrupt to the core with iniquity and idolatry. We find the scene related here. Now look down in verse number 9. What does God say about it? He says, yet. Now that word's significant. God's saying, usually when we say yet, that's following something. Uh, chronologically speaking. Like, for instance, uh, you know, you, you might say, well, someone lied to me, yet I was kind to them. Or someone did me wrong, yet I was patient with them. Now, God's going to talk about some things He did way back in the past. And He juxtaposes them to some things the Israelites are doing presently today. You know, that reminds me of the omniscience of God. Uh, in other words, God's saying, I knew you'd do all this. <laughs> yet I still did this way back in the past for you. You know, God knew everything you and I would do uh, long before He ever did anything for us. You know, God knew what you and I would do long before He ever saved us, long before He ever died for us. He knew what you and I would do. Uh, God, listen, this moment right now, May 24th, 2020, is just as present uh, in the presence of God as the first moment that He spoke light and life into existence. God knew who and what we would be before He ever died for us. He says, you're living this way, yet this is what I did for you. He said, yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. The people known as the Amorites in the Bible, they have become a footnote as we study the peoples of the Old Testament, the Gentile nations of the Old Testament. And I think a lot of the reason for that was before the children of Israel ever got into the land of Canaan, God had already destroyed them. You'll find them spoken about both in the Pentateuch and also in the Psalms, uh, describing the conquering of Sihon and Og, the king of Bashan. And we sort of just see this as just kind of a footnote. We don't even really think of the people of Israel as really a nation or a people until they get in the land of Canaan. But you have to understand the Amorites were a great and mighty people. They were the ones standing in the way of the children of Israel being able to enter the land of Canaan. And God says, you know, back when you were just a tent-dwelling nomadic people, back when you were a bunch of nobodies come out of Egyptian darkness and bondage, I went and I marched at the head of your great procession leaving the land of Egypt, and I smote down great kings and great warriors and great armies before you to make a way for you to go into the land of Canaan. We find the story rehearsed here of God's goodness and grace to them. And God is reminding them that despite all of their ungodliness and wickedness, He has been very gracious and very good in their life. And we find sort of three categories. In verse number 9, you know what we find? We find the preparatory work of God. God saying, I went before you and made a way for you. Can I tell you this this, uh, this evening? Listen, long before you ever knew God, God knew who you were. I want to be careful with how I say that. I'm not suggesting that God chooses some to heaven, that God chooses some to hell. We know that's a wicked lie straight out of the pits of hell. We understand that whosoever will can be saved. I'm not saying that uh, that uh, that God uh, predestinates or foreordains some men to eternal life and some men to eternal damnation. I'm just here's all I'm saying. I'm saying God knows everything all the time, and God knew who and what you were before you ever heard His name. 
God was working in your life and working in my life long before we ever knew Him. Now, we still had the choice whether to receive Him or not. We still had the decision whether to believe on Him or not. But I'm saying God knew us and who we were long before we ever knew Him. You know what God says to Israel? says, before you were ever Israel, before you ever made it in the land, before you ever had a king on a throne, before you ever had walls around your cities, before you ever anything to speak of, He said, I marched at the head of you and I made a way so that you could be in the land. Reminds me that the work of God started long before I ever realized or recognized the work of God in my life. I could go down. In fact, I'm going to go down and tell you the story. Can I do that? Can I go down the line and tell you the story of a little boy that could have been born into pagan darkness, that could have been born somewhere where they had never heard the name of Jesus Christ, but instead, by the grace of God, he was born into a family where they knew God and loved God and worshipped God. Can I tell you the story about a little boy that could have been born into a family of alcoholism, that could have been born into a family of abuse, but instead God gave him parents that loved him and took him to church. Can I tell you the story about a little boy that could have been born into one of these churches that doesn't know the truth or preach the truth, uh, that never gets further than John 16, never gets further than John 14, but God put him in a church with a man of God that knew the Bible and believed the Bible and taught the Bible and preached the Bible. I'm saying long before that December day when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, God had already been making a way and carving a path for me. We see the preparatory work of God, and I bet you could tell your story too, of all the things that God did to make a way for you to come to know Him as your Savior. We see the preparatory work of God. Look at verse 10. Here's what He says also. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I'm going to call this the primary work of God. Say, so why are you calling it that, preacher? Because this was the big event in Israel's national history. Whenever they had gone from being just a family, just, we might say, a peoples in the land of Egypt, to being led out of that place. And we understand the, the, the typological significance, right, of them dwelling in the land of Egypt and in darkness, and they're brought by the blood of the Lamb. We talked about it this morning. Brought by the blood of the Lamb out of the land of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and led into the land of Canaan. And from that point forward, they are seen not just as a peoples, not just as a family, but as a nation. They've got a home, they've got uh, cities, they've got a capital. Uh, later on, they get a king, they've got walls, they've got identity. They are a people. All of this took place because God heard their cry when they were down in the land of Egypt, because God saw their affliction when they were in the land of Egypt, because God came down to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. That was the primary work of God in their national history. And you know, it reminds me of what God did in saving us. We went from being nobody and nothing... I don't know who and what you might have been in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes, as it relates to spiritual position, use nobody and nothing. But He loved you and He cared for you. He loved you more than anybody else ever could or ever will. And He took you out. Listen, today you might be nothing and nobody in the world's eyes, but if you're a child of God, you're something and somebody. Amen. That was the primary work of God in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And then notice what it says in verse 11. It don't just stop there. So there's a work done before they ever know God. There's a work done in them knowing God. But then there's a work that goes beyond that in their knowing of God. Verse 11, he says, And I raised up for your son, of your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? 
Now, what he's talking about, of course, Nazarites was a uh, people in the Old Testament that had taken a particular vow of commitment and separation unto God. We know what a prophet is. A prophet was a man that spoke for God in the Old Testament. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I not only worked in your life to bring you to out of Egypt, We might say it this way about us, uh, that God worked in our life to bring us to a saving knowledge of God. Not only that He brought them out of Egypt, He delivered them from darkness and bondage, and we might say that He saved us by His grace. But then His goodness and grace went beyond that. He did even greater things in their life after that. He called their sons, their children, to be holy people that walked with God and that knew God. He says, I've poured great blessings... On your family. Can I say to you tonight that all of us that know God, if we were to be honest, we'd have to admit, God's done a lot more than just saving us. Uh, the, the, listen, I don't know. I, it's almost hard to even, even uh, calculate what it would take to put us on e- even standing with God. It's unthinkable. There's no point in which we could view ourselves as being square with God. We're always in His debt. But suffice it to say, if all he had allowed was our heart to beat one time, if all he had ever allowed was one uh, one draw of breath into our lungs, we would be indebted to him far more than we could ever pay back. But oh, how much more he's done than just that. I'm saying God's been so good to you and me. There is a perpetual work of God. He went beyond just the preparatory work. He went beyond just the primary work. And there was a perpetual work. God didn't throw you away the moment that you believed on Him. He's worked in your life every single day since. Now, what's God doing here? He's framing, He's bringing the narrative to a crisis point. He is creating what we would call uh, literary or narrative tension. He's saying, you're living this way even in spite of all that I've done in your life. You would think this would be the point where they would break in repentance and contrition. You'd think at that point they'd say, you know, God, you're right. We're not living right. We're not doing right. We're not treating you the way that you deserve. You've been so great to us, but instead we've been disobedient to you. You'd think that moment they'd fall down in repentance and say, I'm sorry, God, for the way that I've lived, but that's not what they did. Notice their sinful response, verse 12. He said, I gave you Nazarites of your sons... And here's what you did, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. He said, I gave you prophets of your children, and here's what you did. You commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. They're sinful. We could use the word scornful. We could use the word spiteful response. When faced with God's grace and mercy, I understand it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. But you know, if men refuse to repent, they're also discounting the goodness of God in doing that. Don't that make sense now? If the goodness of God leads men to repentance, right? The goodness of God leadeth men to repentance. That's what your Bible says. It's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. When a man won't repent, he's discounting and dismissing and disregarding the goodness of God in order to do it. And that's exactly what they did. Because they refused to repent, they did two things. Notice, and I think this is interesting. One, they seduced those with a vow. These Nazarites had made promises to God that they'd never touch wine, that they'd never partake in it. And by the way, that's not just talking, it would include strong drink, but it's not just talking about strong drink. So how do you know that, preacher? Because all of Israel was forbid from strong drink. Because all of God's people are forbid from strong drink. 
It's not just talking about strong drink. It's saying even wine itself. A, a Nazarite would have lived on a, on a liquid uh, subsistence of water. Not to say they wouldn't eat food, but what they would drink would be water and nothing else. This is why most of the uh, Nazarites in the Bible were just Nazarites for a temporary season. There's only about three or four men in your Bible that were Nazarites for life. Most of them it was just a vow, an oath that you would take for a season of time uh, in commitment unto God. But here's what they did. Whenever they saw men making commitments to God, they snickered at it and they came along and they waved wine in front of their face and said, don't you want to drink? I've seen this happen, man. I've seen it happen with young people. I've seen young people get right with God and make commitments to God and their friends come along don't like that they're making commitments to God. Don't like that they won't laugh at the same dirty jokes. Don't like the fact that they won't listen to the same filthy music. Don't like the fact that they won't laugh at other Christians and laugh at godly people and come along and try to seduce them away from those commitments that they've made. Can I tell you something? I've seen adults do it too. I have. I've seen adults see uh, see their children or their spouse or their mother or their father get serious about serving God, and they don't. They're more subtle than kids are. They'll just sort of look at them with a wary look and snicker about it. They'll just sort of look at them and say, "Well, that won't last." Can I tell you something that I tell people every year after camp? Every year after camp, there's always, and and it's got. I guess it's gotten the place where people know it ticks me off, so they don't say it to me anymore. It used to be people would say things like, well, I hope it lasts for two or three months. I busted that enough times that most people don't say that to me anymore. You know why? Because one good way to guarantee, Brother Ken, it won't last more than two or three months is to sit back and snicker and be haughty and be prideful and treat it like what happened up on that campground was a small thing. Hey, God help us when we despise the day of small things. A lot of big things have started in small ways. Listen, it won't last long in the hearts of our kids if we meet it with scorn and cynicism. It don't take much to put a fire out when it's little. It don't take much to put a fire out when it, when it's just an ember barely smoldering. It don't take much to put it out. You ever seen these survival guys? I know you have. There's all kinds of these survival. We're, boy, we're, we're going off the rails here, but you come with me. We'll get back. All right. I said, we watch these survival guys, like this bear guy. You seen him? He's the one that, that, that does all kinds of gross stuff, and he's, they, they'll drop him off like in the middle, on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere, and he's gotta to try to hike his way out this bear, this, what, what, who am I? Bear Grills. That's what his name is. You, you know what I'm talking about? This man versus wild. Don't just stare at me. You got a TV. You know what I'm talking about? You got this guy. And then there's this survivor man guy. Anybody ever seen his show? You seen that survival? Is it me or when they go to commercial break, does it sound like it goes tickle, 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 tickle? You know what I'm talking about, Brother Ken? They don't, so they're looking at me like I'm crazy. But you know what I, you know what I'm talking about. I hope you do, or maybe I am crazy. But they, uh, these survival guys, they'll go and they'll try to strike a fire. You know what I'm talking about? And they'll get their tinder together and they'll get their hay together or whatever it is and they'll try to strike a fire. And what do they always do? They do it like this right here. They'll, they'll strike off some of that flint. And then they'll pick up that fire and they'll do this. They'll go. They'll take it and they'll cup it and they'll guard it and they'll go. What are they doing? They're babying that thing. If it's exposed to the elements, they know it won't last. Can I tell you something? You want to see your children do great things for God? Every time God strikes an ember in your heart, you pick that ember up and go. You encourage them. You pray for them. You, you guard that thing. You protect that thing. You do everything you can to see that thing grow. Because there may come a day when their heart is as cold as the middle of the subarctic. And you just praying and begging God for a little ember. So you, every time, and just keep that thing safe as you can. 
Here's what they did instead. They saw people who made a commitment to live for God and to serve God, and it threatened their status quo, so they seduced them away from those vows. Here's the second thing they did. They silenced those with voices. God had given some people to preach truth in their life. God had given some people that, were, that loved them enough to tell them the truth in their life, and they said, prophesy not unto us. You know what we so often do? Uh, very often we'll pray and we'll beg God to work in our life. And God will give somebody a word that will come along and want to speak truth to us. And because it's offensive to us, because we don't like it, because we don't want to get rid of our pet sins, when that word of truth comes, we'll push it away. Is it ever dawned on you, there may be times that God's trying His dead-level best to give you the thing you're begging Him for, but you won't get out of your own way long enough for Him to do it? I'm going to say that again. Has it ever dawned on you that you might be begging God to do something that He's doing His dead-level best to do, but you won't get out of your own way long enough for God to accomplish it? Here they were begging God to bless their nation. Here they were begging God to keep them safe. Here they were begging God to prosper them. And God's doing everything He can to prosper them, but when He gives a lifeline, when He throws a life preserver out to them, they push it away. When He strikes a little ember, they blow it out. They snuff it out. I'm saying this, their sinful response was the greatest impediment to God working in their life. We see their sinful response, and then God says something interesting. A whole series, maybe, uh, maybe, a, maybe a whole conference of sermons could be preached on this one verse. Look at verse 13. Listen to what God says about His people. He says, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. So here's what I'm going to say. Here's how I'm going to say it. We find the scene related in verses 6 through 8. A scene of injustice, indifference, immorality, idolatry, indulgence. We find the story of God's goodness rehearsed. The preparatory work of God. The primary work of God. The perpetual work of God. Sadly, we see the sinful response. They seduced those with a vow. Anybody trying to do something for God, they, they scorned them. They mocked them. They laughed at them. They tried to seduce them away and get them to break that vow. Uh, they also silenced those with a voice. Anybody with a voice of truth that sought to, uh, to put truth into their life and sought to be honest and help them, they silenced those. And so you know what we find in verse 13? Listen now. We find the strain revealed. God says, I've had about enough. I'm like a cart full of sheaves that's weighed down, that is pressed under, that is buckling. What does this suggest to us? Well, I wrote down three things. Let me share them with you. One, God is saying He is full. A cart that is pressed down, a cart that is full of sheaves, is a cart that is overloaded with weight. Now, what is it that was making the children of Israel a burden to bear? wasn't the fact that they were needy. It wasn't the fact that they were a poor people. It wasn't the fact that they were a weak people. Because in all those circumstances, God beckoned them to lean upon His everlasting arms. God told them He would put them upon His shoulders. He would bear them up upon His wings. What was it that made them so heavy? It was their sin that made them heavy. God is saying He has reached His limit of patience with their sin. You know, very often I think the people who are mindful to not burden God couldn't be a burden if they tried. And the people who are never thoughtful for the burden they are are the ones that weigh Him down and fatigue Him. Can I tell you that it's my experience as a pastor that that's the case? You know, very often the people that could lighten the load never think to. And the people, Brother Ken, who are always lightening the load are really not those that are heavy to carry in the first place. 
You know that's probably true in your life as well. It's probably true with your kids, probably true with your friends, probably true with the rest of your family, that the ones that are mindful they might be a burden never are. And the ones that are the greatest burden are the ones that would never even give thought to the fact that they are a burden. You know, that's how we are with God. You know, you know the greatest way that we can be a joy to the Lord? Uh, you know, the Bible, the Bible talks about the relationship and I, I'm not, I'm not preaching on church membership. I'm not preaching on being a pastor. I'm not preaching on you being a church member and being at church. So I, listen carefully. I'm making an illustration here. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews uh, that we ought to, we ought to uh, give great honor to those that, that watch over our souls, Brother Charlie. You know what I'm talking about? That we ought to give great honor to those that care for our souls, that, that, that administer the truth of the Word of God. And here's what God says, that they might do it joyfully. Joyfully. In other words, God's saying that in your relationship between you and your pastor, you ought to strive that, that his, his ministering to you is a joy in his life. Now, can I tell you something? That's your relationship between you as the sheep and the under-shepherd, the pastor. Can I say there's also a chief shepherd? And that same dynamic ought to relate to him as well. It ought to be we ought to strive, Brother Fred, to never be a burden to God. Now, somebody's going to say, I could never be a burden to God. You probably are a burden to God. Somebody said, God never be upset with me. Yeah, he probably is right now. Here's the language he had with his people. I'm talking about the people he loved. I'm talking about the people that he cared for. I'm talking about the covenant people that he promised to never cast off and he never has. He says, I'm like a cart that is pressed underneath you. It's, it's possible, just as it's possible to bless the Lord, it's possible to burden the Lord. It's possible to grieve the Holy Ghost. It's possible to quench the Holy Spirit. It's po- Hey, the psalmist said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. You know why? Because sometimes we're not such a blessing to Him. He says I, He is full. Number two, He is fatigued. In other words, when a cart is full of sheaves, it is at the point of breaking down. He's saying he is wearied and grieved by their sin. He's saying that a total collapse is imminent. Can I say that it is possible in your relationship with God and mine? God is never going to throw us away. God's never going to forsake us. God's never going to quit loving us. If we know the Lord is our Savior, He ain't going to wake up on the wrong side of His uh, His celestial bed and cast us into hell because He's in a bad mood. And I'm not suggesting that, but I am saying this. We can reach a point of critical mass in God's long-suffering and patience with us. We can reach a place where God said, I have been patient with you, I have been patient with you, I have been patient with you, and now the only way I can get your attention is through chastening. Believe that God judges His people. Because God judges His people. As such, He's saying, I'm fatigued. I'm right at the point of breaking down. But can I notice something? I see in this passage that He is full. I see He is fatigued. But can I just, something that it's easy to overlook, I notice that He is faithful. Say, so why is that, Brother Toby? Because though he is full, though he is fatigued, yet still he has been carrying them. Can I remind you that were God to throw us away the moment that we weren't worth the trouble, he would have thrown us away before he ever picked us up? If he threw us away the moment that we were more trouble than we're worth, he would have never picked us up. I was talking to Bill Collins one day about weed eaters. You think this ain't got, you think I just had a stroke and this ain't got nothing to do with my preaching, but it does. I was talking to, I was talking to Brother Bill about weed eaters one day and I like his philosophy. There's two prevailing philosophies. You men know what I'm talking about. There's two prevailing philosophies about weed eaters, gas weed eaters. 
One is that you go down to the to the Home Depot or Lowe's and you tell them, I want the best you got. I want something that takes every attachment. I want something that I can clip my toenails with. Some of y'all couldn't clip your toenails with a weed eater, but say I want one that I can clip. I want one that slices and dices and curls and cubes. I want one that'll do everything that I could imagine it do, and I'll pay whatever it takes for it. And you'll get a good weed eater. You'll get a weed eater to last you five years. You'll get a weed eater might last you ten years. But you know, there's another philosophy, and that's that you go down to the Walmart and you find the cheapest piece of junk that they sell. And you buy that. Now you might go out and pay six, seven, eight hundred dollars, thousand dollars for a good weed eater, or you can go down to Walmart and pay sixty nine ninety nine and get the cheapest weed eater that they've got. And you know that first year they'll both run the same. They'll both run the same, man. Well, that thing will fire right up. First year they'll run the same. The second year you'll start to notice a little difference. That first one, one pull, she'll fire right up. That second one you're gonna have to talk to a little bit. By year number three, things have completely changed. And I was talking to Brother Bill about this one day, and I like his philosophy. He said, you know what I do, Toby? He said, I go down and I buy the cheapest piece of junk weed eater that they've got. And he said, I've made my promise, I've made this promise to myself that if I ever have to pull that cord more than three times in a row, I'm going to throw it in the garbage, drive back to Walmart, and go buy me another one. You can run, you a, you can run the numbers on it as to which is a cheaper route and cheaper way. But he says, the first time I pull on that cord and she don't do anything, I throw it in the garbage and go get another one. Can I say this to you? If God did us like a cheap weed eater, if He did us like a cheap weed eater, He would have never pulled the cord the first time. But you know that in your life and in my life, God has pulled that cord untold millions of times. And we sometimes we get put out with God at the notion, well, you're telling me God would judge me? I thought God loved me. God does love you. That's why He didn't judge you before this whole thing ever got started. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. Instead, we want to get mad that God has a limit. And God does have a limit. Not a limit to His love, but a limit to His long-sufferingness. He'll continue to love us. Love can be expressed through chastening. If you don't believe that, ask my daddy. Because every time he whipped me growing up, he said, I'm doing this because I love you. I still don't know if that's true, but that's what he said between him and God. Love can be expressed through chastening. Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chastened. I would a lot rather that he express his love through kindness and tenderness and blessing and prospering than through chastening and through punishment and through correction. One way or another, God's going to love you. If you'll let Him love you through blessing, He'll love you through blessing. But if the only way He can love you is through chastening, He's still going to love you. And He'll do so by chastening you. I see in this passage the strain related uh, and revealed. And then finally, I want you to notice the stability removed. I'm not really going to preach this. I'm just going to read it and give you my thoughts. I guess that's kind of what preaching is anyway. Look at verse 14. God says, here's what I'm going to do because of that. He says, therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift. God said, I'm going to remove your speed from you. You think you can get away from me, but you can't get away from me. He said, but I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to make it to where you can't get away from your enemies either. Ever had one of these dreams where you're trying to run and your legs just feel like they weigh a thousand pounds? For me, that's called life. But, but uh, you ever had one of these dreams? You know what I'm talking about? These dreams where, or maybe you're trying to fight someone off and, 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 and your limbs, they just won't move and you're trying to get away and your legs just, God says, spiritually speaking. For them, I would say that, that militarily speaking. But for you and I, spiritually speaking, you know what you'll find? God will remove our deftness. 
our ability to navigate, our spiritual nimbleness. Our, it'll be like trying to move and steer a ship. You spin the wheel, but it takes a while for the, for the stern to, to respond to that thing. And you know that spiritually speaking in your life and mine, if we uh, choose to live a life of sin, if we refuse to live in obedience unto God, God will remove that nimbleness from us and we'll find that we are laid waste by various things in our life. God removes their speed. Look at the next phrase. He says, the strong shall not strengthen his force. God would destroy their strength as well. Spiritual strength comes from from weakness of self-reliance and rather from leaning upon the Lord. It's the reason Paul said, when I am weak, then am I strong. Uh, You know why? Because God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, whose weakness? Well, not God's weakness because it's his strength we're talking about. So it must be talking about our weakness. So the weaker I am, the stronger God is. You know what that means? The more that I think I'm strong, the less that God is able to exert His strength in my life. In my life. God would remove their spiritual strength. He would destroy their self-reliance. He says, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. He said, you think you can handle things on your own, but you're going to be disabused of that. You're going to learn you cannot. And this haughtiness that causes you to lean upon self will be stripped from you. Verse 15, Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. A person that handles a bow, uh, handling a bow was a great skill in the Old Testament and in ancient times. It wasn't just anybody could handle a bow. It took someone with great strength and someone with great skill and great dexterity. You literally had to be trained. That's the reason the crossbow revolutionized military technology. You can take any old boy that never shot a bow in his life and put a crossbow in his hand and he could take out a whole row of men because before that, when a man uh, shot with a recurve bow or the long bow, it took a lifetime to master that skill. God says those that handle the bow that have dedicated themselves to that skill, I'm going to destroy that skill. I'm going to take away their, their ability from that. Uh, next phrase he says, neither shall he that rideth uh, the horse deliver himself. God says, I'm going to destroy your steeds. The machines that you're depending on to get ahead. That's what a horse was to them. Uh, very soon in human history, horses were replaced by all manner of war machines. But for a long time, a horse uh, was the chief war machine. Uh, a mounted cavalryman, a, a mounted uh, knights unit or a mounted military unit was almost indestructible, almost unconquerable. And even the psalmist talks about men depending upon the swiftness of their horse in the day of battle. says that men ought not rely upon the horse, uh, but instead rely upon the Lord. Shouldn't trust in chariots but should trust in the God of Israel. Why? These were the great war machines of their day. God says, I'm going to remove those mechanisms, those machines, uh, those things that you possess that you think makes you unconquerable. makes me think about things in our life, uh, financial mechanisms that we have, health ability that we have, things in our life that God says, if you trust in that instead of trusting in me, I'll take it away from you. God would destroy their steeds. And finally, God said He would destroy their steadfastness. He says, He that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. In other words, those men that say they'll never turn from the battle, those men that say they cannot be dissuaded from the front line, those men that say they will not flinch in that hour of intensity and hostility, He said those men will run away and flee from the day of battle. Can I just sum it up by saying this? God has the ability to turn your world or my world upside down if He needs to to get our attention. God doesn't desire to do that. Just as a parent has no desire, any parent that loves their children would admit that the thing he hates more than almost anything else in the world 
is to discipline his child. You say, preacher, why do you say almost? Because there is one thing they hate worse. And that's seeing their child make shipwreck of their life. That's why they're willing to discipline. That's why they're willing to punish. Because they don't want to see that child make shipwreck of their life. But next to that, they hate more than anything to have to discipline their child. You know, God's the same way. God doesn't long to chasten us, but He's loath to let us go. And as such, He will chasten you. He will chasten me if we allow sin in our life. God has the ability. I, you know what I would think? And you, I might be wrong. I don't know any man's heart. I, I might think this, that there's a few of us standing between point number two and point number three of this message. What was point number two? The story rehearsed. God reminding us of His goodness and grace in our life. What was point number three? Their sinful response. At that crisis moment when God has convicted us, has made us aware. Now, it might be a fairly, what we would call a small thing that God is dealing with us about in our life. I trust to believe that on a Sunday night, uh, when you could be anywhere in the world, that probably those that are here know God and, and love God and want to live for God, and probably you don't have any great, deep, abiding, hidden sin in your life that nobody's aware of, but it might be some small thing in your life, and God has reminded you tonight of how good He's been to you. Now here's the question, how are you going to respond? I'll tell you how they respond. They got, they got their back up. They bowed up on God about it. They got angry at God about it. They, they, they despised the Lord over it. And because of that, God had to come down with a heavier hand. Can I encourage you tonight to say, don't get angry at God. Don't get rebellious against God. Don't bow up against God. Instead, say, you know, Lord, you have been awful good to me. And it's about time that I get my life in a lot better shape, in a lot better condition, and live it a lot better for you because you're deserving of it. Let's bow together tonight. The musician comes to play. The altar's open. If God has spoken to your heart, then now's the opportunity. Now's the time. Why don't you respond obediently unto Him? Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word, for the precious truth of it. May it exhort us. May it edify us. May it draw us closer to you. Form us more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name we ask.